As some of you may have seen, a 78-year-old farmer from Norfolk was featured in the national press a few days ago. I quote from the Daily Telegraph. Alec Garrard, 78 years old, has dedicated a massive 33,000 hours to constructing the ancient Herod's Temple, which measures a whopping 20 feet by 12 feet. This remarkable pensioner, there should be some pictures coming on the screen when the computer catches up, there you go. Uh, the pensioner has hand-baked and painted every clay brick and tile. He's even sculpted 4,000 tiny human figures to populate the courtyards. Historical experts believe this model is the best representation in the world of what the Jewish temple actually looked like, and it's attracted thousands of visitors from all over the globe. He gives them binoculars to be able to look at it. I thought microscope might be better, but anyway. But Mr. Garrard, who started this project in his 40s, says his masterpiece will not be finished in his lifetime. He says, I've been working at it for decades, but it will never be finished as I'm always finding something new to add. Well, even though he also says his wife thinks he's mad and wishes, says she wishes she'd married a normal man, <laughs> you have to say it's a remarkable achievement by just one person. But today, as we continue our series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, which we've entitled Restoring the Ruins, we read today of an even more remarkable achievement centered on that same city of Jerusalem in which the original Herod's temple would later be built. When Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king of Persia, arrived in Jerusalem around the year 445 BC, he was faced with an enormous challenge. The walls of the ancient city lay in absolute and utter ruins. To restore them would mean rebuilding, and experts aren't sure about the actual length, somewhere between one and a half and two and a half miles of walls, up to eight feet thick, between 15 and 20 feet high, with 10 major gates to put in place. Yet, the work was finished in 52 days. So, how did Nehemiah manage it? Well, not as a one-man project like our Norfolk farmer, but by harnessing the active cooperation and participation of his fellow citizens building together. Building together. That's our theme this morning. So let's turn to the account. You'll find it in Nehemiah chapter 3. It's page 486 in the Pew Bibles. And as David already mentioned to the children, it may just seem like a long list of names. But as we read them, be encouraged. Because God knows our names. And even though you may not be written down, if you're a Christian, the Bible says your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The prophet says it's engraven on God's hands. And God knows what you have done and what you are doing in his service. That's encouraging, isn't it? 
So let's try and read this. It's a long chapter, and I'll have a go at the Hebrew names as well, all right? Here we go. Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel, the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachor, son of Imri, built next to them. We're actually moving, if you, if you, you probably don't realize this, but we're moving in. Is it possible to get up the, the image that comes later, which shows you actually, there's an image for those who want to know. We're actually going clockwise around the walls here with the gates, all right? If you can just go a bit further, and if you can't find it, you and don't worry, but that, that's fine. There you go. Uh, that's not, no help at all, probably, but we're starting at the top north anyway. All right, all right. Okay, so we come round then to the fish gate, was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, rebuilt, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabal, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Barna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshanar gate was repaired by Joida, son of Passia, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mispah, Melatire of Gibeon and Jadon of Merinoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramah, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hashabaneh, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section. And the Tower of the Ovens, Shalom, son of Haloesh, Ruler of a half district of Jerusalem repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate, coming further round, was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zanoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem. He rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mitzpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Beth Zur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, repairs were made by the Levites, under Rehem, son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their countrymen, under Binui, son of Hanadad ruler of the other half district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezra, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mispah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent of the armory as far as the angle. Next to him, Barak, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Elisha, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section from the entrance of Elisha's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests, 
from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house and next to them. Azariah, son of Marciah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binui, son of Hanadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle in the corner. And Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate towards the east in the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner and between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, there they are, they've come full circle, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Well, that's interesting reading, isn't it? Hard work, I'm going to take a drink at this point. They'd probably think your names were strange as well. So. Now, <clears throat> losing my voice here. Before we look at more detail, in more detail at this chapter about the people and their participation building together, we need first of all to focus on the person without whom it would never have happened. First of all, look with me then at the leader and his plan, and then we'll look at the people and their participation. All right? When Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, the biggest problem that he faced was not the broken walls of the city of God, but the broken spirits of the people of God. Some of these people were descendants of the poorer people whom the Babylonians had left behind 150 years before when they sieged and then sacked the city. They deported any survivors of any status or skills. Others there were Israelites who had returned from exile in Babylon in several waves. But after some success in rebuilding the temple a century earlier, they had since faced one discouragement after another. The most recent one had been the halting of a previous attempt to rebuild the walls by false stories sent to the king of Persia by their enemies. So when Nehemiah arrives, picture it, a dozen years after this last setback, he found a people who were discouraged and defeated. There are two negative responses which will threaten to extinguish any enthusiasm for any new initiative, not least in a church. The first one is, we've never done this before. And the second one, which is even worse, is we tried it before and it failed. Or more honestly, though we don't say it, we failed. So Nehemiah has a real problem. His problem is not just with the walls, but with the people. His problem is how do you overcome apathy? The British historian, the great British historian Arnold Toynbee wrote, apathy can only be overcome by enthusiasm, and enthusiasm can be aroused by two things. First, an ideal which takes the imagination by storm, and second, a definite intelligible plan 
for carrying that ideal into practice. Now, as we look at this event, will you notice that Nehemiah has both of these things in place? He has an ideal, a vision. He also has a plan. As we've seen, if you've been with us on the series, and do download if you haven't, or get a copy of the DVD, um, when Nehemiah finally arrived in the city with an armed escort and letters of authority from the king of Persia, he didn't call a huge big meeting of all the population in the center of Jerusalem and give them an I have a dream speech. No, we read he did nothing for three days. And then at night, with just a few men, he set out on a tour of the city walls, the broken walls. He began, therefore, by assessing the situation. This is back in chapter 2, verse 13. By night, I went through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Only then, when he has seen what needs to be done and the extent of the problem, do we find him sharing the vision. And even then, he only shares it with the leaders, city officials, priests and nobles. Nehemiah 2 verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And when they hear this, they respond to the challenge. Verse 18, chapter 2. They replied, let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And then and only then do we come to our chapter this morning, chapter 3, where we see them dividing the responsibility. You see, if Nehemiah had begun with this big speech and just fired people up about what they should do, and they'd all immediately rush to rebuild, that would have been chaos. No, he first assessed the situation, then he shared the vision, and then when they indicated and owned the vision and their willingness to work, he assigns them to specific tasks. We'll see when we come to chapter 3. He's already thought this through. He's already mentally or probably written it down, the division of the labor, how many groups and sections you're going to need. It's not absolutely sure about the root of the walls, uh, but it appears that the walls were quite a bit smaller than the original walls of Jerusalem. He cuts out a long bit because of the task that awaits them, the size of the population. He's thought it through and worked it through. Planning under God's hand is and can be spiritual work. The American pastor James Montgomery Boyce uh, commented, this is the most striking thing about chapter 3 that is so easily overlooked because it's so obvious. He writes, If the rebuilding of the walls had been tackled as a task whole in itself, and if one person or even a group of people had been assigned to it, the work would have seemed impossible and rightly so. Who could rebuild an entire mile and one half or two and a half wall? Nobody. But he continues, when the project was divided into 40 or 41 segments, as the chapter shows it was, then that two and a half mile project became manageable. Now, the application to us is obvious, but it's so obvious we need to say it. We are not building, as David said to the children, a physical wall. But if we belong to Christ, we are part of his church, which he is building throughout the world. Writing to the Christians in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul reminds them, and as if we are followers of Jesus, they are, now part of, they are now part of members of the church, God's building. This is Ephesians 2, 
Consequently, he says to these people who had no Jewish background, they were from a Gentile background, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. If you are a Christian... You have the most amazing privilege. You are part of the church, capital C. You belong to Christ, part of his people scattered throughout the world, made up of innumerable people from every tribe and tongue, kindred and nation, both past and present and yet to come. You're part of what we call the universal church. But you need to build where you are. There are some of us here who say, yes, amen to the first point, but not to the second point. You are members of the church and you need to be a member of a church, building together with God's people where God has put you in your section of the world. So Paul goes on that passage in Ephesians and he then says, and in him, Christ too, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So every local church is a kind of building section. Possessed by God's Spirit, building together locally. And every local church needs leaders with vision. For without any vision, as the Word of God says, book of Proverbs, the people perish, a church stagnates and dies. But a local church also needs vision with planning, which involves what is popularly called every person, every member ministry. All of us working together to build God's church. Those who belong to the church should belong to a church. If God has brought you to Edinburgh, you need to find a church where you can work to build Christ's kingdom. If it's Charlotte Chapel, God bless you. We welcome you. You know Jesus Christ. And when I roll it, your sleeves and get involved. If not, you need to find a church somewhere else. So I ask you a question. This is pretty practical. Do you belong to a local church? And if so, what part are you playing within it? Working together with other members. And let me speak on a larger scale. What applies to building together within local churches also applies across local churches. One of my concerns in the years I've been here in Edinburgh, these past 17 years, is that there is no real coming together of churches, Bible-believing churches across the spectrum. There is no real coming together of pastors to pray together. There are little groups here and there. But you just can't get pastors to pray together. So here's a prayer point for you. When the OM ship Logos Hope comes in April, the day after it comes, some of us who are concerned about this have organized and are inviting all the pastors in Edinburgh who believe in the gospel, who believe in God's word, to come together and make a start and let's pray together. Be united together in prayer. I want you to pray that that will be successful. Because... We have enough opposition and enemies without fighting among ourselves. And also without building all in the same section of the wall. Another thing that's very interesting while I've been here these years, which never happened in my generation, and it's a mixed blessing, is my guess is while I've been here in these years, on average at least one church has been planted in Edinburgh, a new church from outside. Probably 15 to 20, maybe more than that. I've never sat down and counted them all of people have come to Edinburgh and said, God has called me to plant a church in Edinburgh. 
I think of one man I met at a little prayer meeting. I said, where are you from? I think he was from South Africa or Australia. I can't remember exactly the details, but I do remember what his answer was. He said, God has called me to come and plant a church in Edinburgh. And I said, that's great. I said, listen, I can give you a list of these really needy areas where there is no real gospel witness. Oh, no, he said, city center as close to the university as possible. Listen, friends, if we're all building the same section of wall, what about the areas where there is no building going on? At our elders' meeting uh, this week, uh, Mes McConnell came and reported on the work that was going on at Nidri. And uh, we, we, we some, one of us somewhat foolishly said to Mez, what do you want to see in three years' time? Uh, Mez said, I'd like to plant two more churches, one in Bingham and one in Greendikes. Now, if you know anything about Edinburgh, church planters from all over the world are not looking to plant churches in Bingham, Greendikes, and Nidderay. You won't have any competition, friends. We need to be building together as churches. There are great gaps in the world where there is no gospel witness. And it's a desperate situation if we're all, I'm not, the students here, I'm glad to see you, it's wonderful to see you, you know. Uh, And uh, as many as you want to come, you're welcome. But listen, friends, we can't all be working just with students in the city center. And just with Christian students, we need to be reaching out as the University of Trenton and their mission recently to reach out to the people in Edinburgh that aren't Christians. Friends, there's enough sinners to go around. So, enough said on that, but let's return to the local church in Nehemiah's challenge as we turn from the leader and his plan to the people and their participation. It was the British humorist Jerome K. Jerome who famously said, I like work, it fascinates me, I can stand and look at it for hours. In his book on Nehemiah, Warren Wiersbe, the American pastor, who, if you've ever heard him, is a very humorous person himself, uh, quotes this in in his book. He he calls the chapter on Nehemiah 3, it's a great title, I wish I could have stolen it and not told you, but he calls this chapter, Wall-to-Wall Workers. I kind of like that. Uh, And he writes this, when it comes to the work of the Lord, there is no place for spectators or self-appointed advisors or critics, but there is always room for workers. What do we need in Charlotte Chapel? Workers. Some people come to a church like this and think, there's a lot of people there, I can take it easy. Listen, we need workers. We need people in our youth council. We need people to work with young people. We need people, just if you need a job, just join and we'll give you plenty. We'll give you a list. And we see in the list of people in Nehemiah 3, we see them working together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Notice, first of all, as we've already seen, the division of the work. It's centered on gates, and sections of wall. Of course, for the, for, the, for the wall, there was plenty of stone and rubble lying around. You, you, can't, you can't destroy stone so easily. For the timber, it was all being burnt and decayed. And you'll know that Nehemiah had permission from the king to use uh, wood from the king's forests. Uh, there are two words that recur throughout this chapter. You probably noticed them. Uh, one is translated built or rebuilt, which is found seven times. The other, more common word, is the word repair which means to make strong or firm. Uh, And I counted 35 times that that word is used in the chapter. Uh, There are these 10 gates, which we've described in an anti-clockwise direction, beginning at the sheep gate, and and, uh, uh, see the image again, going all the way around and then coming back up to the other side again. When when I was growing up, 
I remember going to Bible conferences where we had Bible teachers who gave very interesting sermons on the significance of every one of the gates and what they all meant. For example, the fountain gate represents the Spirit of God, the water gate represents the Word of God. I can't quite remember what the dung gate represented, but I'm not going to go there. Um, And what they said was quite helpful, and it was true, but I don't think that's what the point of the passage is. The main point with gates is, what do gates do? Well, they provide security, so that those who need to be in are in, and those who need to be out are kept out. To keep its citizens safe inside, and its enemies outside from entering the city. And the main point, the main emphasis is, when you build walls and gates, you have security. It's a picture of unity. So Paul says to those Christians in Ephesus a bit later on from the passage we read, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make sure you make every effort because unity is a very fragile thing. If any specific point is to be made about the gates, I would say this. Notice that the work begins at the sheep gate and it ends at the sheep gate. The sheep gate, as its name suggests, was the gate which was closest to the temple and it was the gate through which all the animals went for sacrifice. And it's significant that the work begins with the high priest and his fellow priests, and it begins with them dedicating the work to the Lord. Uh, In his book on Nehemiah, which is called Revival in the Rubble, subtitled How God Rebuilds His Broken People, uh, John Kitchen comments on this. Twice uh, we are told, it should be we are told, that's a spelling mistake, we are told that this gate was dedicated, verse 1. From the very beginning, this rebuilding project was consecrated or set apart to God. This was God's wall, for this was God's city housing God's people where God's purposes were to be fulfilled. And it was the spiritual leadership, the high priests and the fellow priests, who led the way. As the psalmist reminds us in our oft-forgotten motto of the city of Edinburgh, Nisai Dominus Frustra, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. So there were 10 gates that were rebuilt, and depending on how you count, there are 40 sections of walls. It's clear that some were longer than others. Did you notice that it said one particular long stretch was 500, it's 1,000 cubits, which is about 500 yards long. Uh, We presumably told this because it was out of the ordinary. If you divide up the actual length, between 40 people, which is the kind of thing I enjoy doing, you got about 50 yards each of wall, if you even it out. So turn then to the description of the workers. And notice the contrast we have here. And David pointed it out to the children earlier in his talk. First of all, the opening verses describe the fact that we have priests and people involved in the work. Uh, verse, verses 1 to 2, Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section. So here's priests and people working together. The priests didn't say, I I know we don't get our hands dirty. That's not spiritual work. No, they got stuck into the work. We also noticed that special attention is given to the fact that the workers also included men and women. Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. This was not a men-only work site. No, it's hard hats all round. And big signs saying danger, men and women at work. Uh, Notice that the workers also included craftsmen and traders. Uh, I loved a bit about the goldsmiths and the perfume makers. You imagine a guy who's a perfume maker. I would imagine they didn't have pretty rough hands, you know. 
I'll I'll spray some perfume on you while you do the work. No. (laughs) They got stuck in between the room of the corn and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants, the men who, who just did business. They worked together. And notice finally the workers came from near and far. Some worked on sections of wool right next to their houses. I would imagine you didn't find it difficult to persuade them to build a wall next to their house. But other people came from a long way away uh, to do the work. For example, men from Tekoa, verse 12, that's southeast of Jerusalem, Zanoa to the southwest, and eight miles north, Mizpah. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Colhezer, ruler of the district of Mizpah. This must have involved personal risk and cost, and yet the people were inspired to come together and to contribute and to work together. Some of them even took on two sections of the work, as we saw. Now, we can summarize the work, the responses to the rebuilding, by saying three things, which are true of any church, all right? Most people did some work. For along with these 38 individuals are many unnamed people who worked underneath them and under their leadership. We also learned, secondly, that some did more work. Some people weren't satisfied to build one section of the wall, They said, I've done that one. Can I have another one? That man named Merimoth, you find him in verse 4. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakos. And you find him again in verse 21. He's kind of run around the world and said, is there anything left for me to do? Boy, these are great church members, you know. And one person is noted for the enthusiasm with which he worked. Next to him, Barak, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Elisha, the high priest. But the account is also very honest, for it records, as is sadly the case also, a few people did no work. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work and to their supervisors. The literal Hebrew is, they did not bring their necks to the service of their lords or the Lord. It's a matter, not of half-heartedness, but of pride. They didn't want to get involved. Now, in any church, you find the same thing, though sometimes the proportions are very different. Someone has famously said, many churches are like a football match. 50,000 spectators who need some exercise watching 22 people who need some rest. (laughs) Friends, it shouldn't be so. We should all be sharing together in the work. And I wonder in which category do you fit? Are you someone who does some work? Are you someone who does more work? Or are you simply someone who does no work? Only you know. So let's just come to a conclusion as we think about what we learn. We began with that Norfolk farmer and the model of Herod's temple. He spent over 30 years building this. It's a remarkable achievement, but it's not of a great practical use. He's actually got a garden shed where he keeps it. The Israeli government wants to borrow it and put it on display, but he won't let it go. But how much more remarkable was the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the Nehemiah's leadership in just 52 days? Not only useful because it provided security for God's people, but what, what, a, what an amazing testimony to God's glory. And what a rebuke, as we'll see in the next chapter, to God's enemies who, who before their back was turned, suddenly they've been laughing at them and suddenly they realize this is becoming a reality. But let me, let me say one final thing, which I think is relevant to us, for those of you who belong to this particular church. One, one final application from Nehemiah 3. Uh, the Lord gives different gifts to his people in his church. 
the picture of the body where you've got different body parts representing different gifts that God has given. But notice here that all the people got involved in the same work, not different work. They all got involved, the perfume makers, uh, the, the, the goldsmiths, the traders, the men, the women, near, far, we've seen it. Making bricks was the priority. So let me finish by asking you, what is our priority in which we can all, elders and people, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, skilled and manual workers, far and near, what is it that we can be involved in together to build Christ's church? And specifically here in Charlotte Chapel. Well, let me tell you, it is the least popular work in any church. It is the most difficult work in any church. It's the poorest supported work in any church. It is the work of prayer. In his letter to the Christians in Colossae, the Apostle Paul urges them and us, devote yourselves to, be, to prayer, being watchful and thankful. A few verses later, he commends one of their members. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He's always wrestling for you in prayer, that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. Prayer, friends, is hard work. It's often unseen work. Even the way we talk about prayer betrays our thinking. We say to someone, you know, who's maybe getting older and, you know, they can't get out as much, well, at least you can pray. Listen, at most you can pray. At most you can pray. When you're fit and well and can do everything else, at most you can pray. I'm delighted to see you all here this morning, especially on a day like this. I was delighted to hear, as you heard, of a record number, almost 350 people at our last church meeting. I hope there'll be an equal number or more at our next church meeting in nine days' time when we come together to vote. But I'd be far more delighted to see an equal number at prayer, at the prayer meeting before we vote. So can I encourage you to come to prayer this week? And specifically, I know it's fellowship group week and let's pray in our fellowship groups as well. But can I specifically urge you to put other things aside, if you possibly can, let's come together and pray on Wednesday before we vote on Tuesday. If we can't get in the lounge, we'll come up here and pray here. It'd be wonderful to see this number of people praying together before we vote. You don't have to be a member to come and pray with us. We need your prayers. What are we doing? We're building unity. And God has given us great unity as we seek to move forward at this crucial stage in the life of Charlotte Chapel. But we need to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we do that by prayer as we build the walls of unity so that together we're united as we go forward. As we do so, we can prove the promise with which I began my ministry in Charlotte Chapel. I was looking at my records on August the 23rd, 1992. The message was entitled, Great Expectations. And it was based on Ephesians 3, and I conclude with this, as a prayer and assurance. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's come together and sing as we conclude this morning.